The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the most nutritious hour of business talk all week. This is Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. Your host and moderator is Bonnie D. Graham. You'll hear from the innovators who have learned to use game-changing technologies to shake up the status quo and help move today's businesses in new directions. Now, here's Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, welcome. If you want to run with the Game Changers, I'm telling you you're in the right place. I always say it, I know, five times a week, and I always mean it in proof has it that it is absolutely true so let's see what the buzz on the street today is or the buzz on the web i've got an interesting quote from scott mcneely co-founder of sun microsystems american businessman Uh, i can just let you look him up but here's an interesting quote you already have zero privacy get over it that was my voiceover editorializing get over it so what are we talking about here well we as individuals have welcomed internet connected mobile devices come on look at your pocket look at your desk how many devices are you carrying they help us make our decisions every day in our business and in our personal lives okay but do you know that every time you go on a company's website to maybe compare prices of toasters or cars or whatever you're leaving a trail of digital breadcrumbs that can be captured and analyzed Uh uh-huh your lifestyle can be looked into who you are where you go what you do so you are trusting these companies whether you know it or not you're trusting them with your data so let's look at the companies you're giving your data to willingly or unwittingly I'll say that they say they have built in and bolted on data security capabilities. Huh? What? Are they really up to the task of protecting your private information? So we have two questions for consumers. Do you care who sees and uses your data and what they do with it? And if not, should you care? And a a quiz for the businesses. Are you really minding the store in terms of taking care of the protection of your customers' valuable data? Come on, it's their information. They're sharing it with you even if they don't realize it. Are you selling it? Are you careless with it? Can it get hacked? Well, we're going to find out. This really is part two of a show we did back on March 1st. We called that episode, You Don't Own Me, uh, Shades of Leslie Gore. But what about my data? And today we're calling it, Whom Do You Trust? Time to Protect Your Customer's Data. And this is directed at businesses. I have an extraordinary panel. They are all so happy to be back. Uh, You can hear their smiling voices in just a second. Let me tell you who they are. First up, we're welcoming back Brian Kilcourse, Managing Partner at RSR. That's Retail Systems Research LLC. He knows what this is all about. Also welcoming Frank Diana, the Principal for Future of Business with TCS, Tata Consultancy Services. And uh, Frank invited me recently to moderate a panel for an open 
ASAP MOOC, a massive online course on the ethics of uh, ethics of Internet, everything. We'll talk about that in a minute. Frank, you can do a plug for the course, and I'm very appreciative. And rounding out the panel is our good friend Larry Stoley, Senior Global Director of Automotive Marketing at SAP. And Larry sponsors our series, The Future of Cars with Game Changers. He's our car guy. So let's circle around the table to Mr. Brian Kilcourse. And Brian, I'm thrilled to welcome you back. And Brian has sent us a quote this time from Richard Clark. Uh, there are all kinds of questions about, about the veracity of Richard Clark online and what he did, but let's just say he was a special advisor to the president on cybersecurity. No editorializing. Bush 1, Bush 2, and Clinton. He worked for the State Department also during the presidency of Ronald Reagan. Here's the quote. Okay? If you spend more on coffee than on IT security, you will be hacked. What's more, you deserve to be hacked. Brian Kilcourse, those are fighting words from Richard Clark. How are you? I'm doing well. Um, that was kind of in keeping with his personality, don't you think? <laughs> A little bit <laughs> I know. most of the time. If, if you look him up on Twitter, you'll see that there are some very unflattering handles with his name attached to them, and, and I'm not even going to repeat them, so I yet, don't think he's a, there. Yet another reason is if you needed another one to stay off Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, damn, I've already done about 12 tweets before we started the show, and thank you. Frank Diana is here saying, here we go on Twitter. Yes, that's our communication method today. Brian, love the quote, actually. So what, what is this quote all about? Is this real? If you spend more on coffee than IT security, you'll be hacked and you deserve to be? Well, it's a little bit of hyperbole, but, um, you know, the, the, the issue is is that the professional, uh, professional hackers spend 100% of their effort um, trying to figure out ways to break your, break your security, and you might spend some tiny modicum of, your, of all of your efforts to protect the data that, that makes your company run. And uh, I think somewhere else I talked about this, I said it's like trying to bring a knife to a gunfight. It's just it's a mismatch. And um, and he's um, he's engaging in hyperbole, but I'm not. <laughs> so. <laughs> Brian, question. I, I open with saying, do we really care what happens with our data? Most of us who know about it, well, we're willing to take a risk to a degree until we become part of a headline. Such and such company hacked 15 quadrillion billion terabytes of data, and mine was there, and who's using it, what, what entity, what actor, bad or good. But let's talk about the business, the flip side, which is really our topic today, Brian, and, and thank you for helping me refocus the topic for part two. So my question is, do businesses care? Do they care? Well, they really should, to the extent that uh, information is a strategic asset for the company. It's, it's almost like asking, do you care whether you lock your buildings at night? Um, do, you, do you care whether your employees are robbing you blind? Do you care about those things? Um, most people would say, well, yeah, of course I care about those things. Do you care about your brand value? Everybody would say, you bet I care about our brand value. Most, most information in today's world is digitized, and, and most business leaders will say that information is a strategic asset, so it has to be protected just like any other strategic asset. I think so, and yes, until we become the victims of a hacking and we find out that we are, I, I suspect a lot of us are parts of databases that have been hacked and we don't personally know about it, so we don't think about it. I'm just guessing. I don't know if uh, ignorance is really bliss, but I, you, you really can't help not, you can't help be part of somebody's hacking accident or incident. Am I right, Brian? We're going to be somewhere doing something where somebody's going to be hacked, right? Well, you know that your name and, and your preferences and all kinds of things are, are in databases throughout the world. Uh, and you know that just from a casual browse uh, through Facebook, um, where directed ads 
are, have you ever noticed how stunningly accurate they are as, as it relates oh, to things yeah. you've looked up before or said before? Um, um, so those, those are legal uses. Imagine now if somebody gets a hold of that data. Um, so that's the issue. I, I, can't read, I can't read the New York Times online. Every morning I, when I read it, I know some nights I have insomnia, and so I know if I wait to wake up until after 4 a.m., the Times will be in my inbox. And invariably... <laughs> There is an advertisement for a dress, the same dress every day from the same vendor where I looked up a certain style of dresses two years ago. So whoever yeah. is putting together my breadcrumbs on the New York Times still thinks I want that dress. Two years, the same dress, the same color. I, I don't know. Maybe I need to change my wardrobe. Well, maybe <laughs> Thank maybe you. the New York Times needs to change its <laughs> ad agency. But uh, <laughs> we won't, um, we won't yeah. go there. Thank you. Uh, so I want to I welcome Frank. Thank you, Brian. And I want to welcome Frank Diana, our principal for Future of Business at Tata TCS. And Frank, you'll tell us about the, the course in a second, but I want to introduce you with your quote. Frank has sent us a quote from a young lady named Susan Orlean, O-R-L-E-A-N. I say young because she was born in 1955, and I don't know how many on this panel are younger than that, but we're probably all in that range. She's an American journalist and author. She was a staff writer for The New Yorker since 1992. She contributes articles to Vogue, Rolling Stone, Esquire, Outside Magazine, and she's most popularly known as the author of the 1998 book, The Orchid Thief, which was adapted into the film Adaptation in 2002. Meryl Streep won an Academy Award nomination for her performance as Susan Orlean. She also won a Golden Globe Golden Globe for that performance. Okay, uh, the book was about a it was a profile of a Florida orchid grower, breeder, and collector named John LaRoche, and in it they actually fictionalized Susan Orlean in in the book and in the movie. Very interesting. So here is the quote. Very important. You could go crazy thinking of how unprivate our lives really are. The omnipresent security cameras, the tracking data on our very smartphones, the poorest state of our Internet selves, the trail of electronic crumbs we leave every day. Well, if that isn't poetic, I don't know what is. Frank Diana, how are you? I'm great. Thanks again for having me. We are delighted. Couldn't have this panel without you, my friend. So tell me about the quote, and then we'll talk a little bit about, about the, uh, the course that we worked on. So the quote, we're talking about businesses. Do they care about the privacy of their customers' data, Frank? Well, of course they do. Um, I, I think there's more to be done, obviously, but I, I think it would be a really strong statement to say they don't care about their customers' data. And this is an interesting topic for me because, obviously, we're focused here on the business aspects of this. Um, but, you know, there's a personal responsibility that we all have in terms of protecting our own privacy. And, and quite frankly, privacy in, in the history of human history is a, a fairly recent phenomenon. Uh, you know, privacy really did not exist in, in decades, centuries gone by. Uh, so it is fairly uh, fairly new phenomena. And, and in terms of satellites that are up in the sky taking pictures, and I mean, it really is shocking to if you step back and thought about it, just how much surveillance is out there and, and, and sure to grow. Absolutely. Frank, tell me about the course we did, the course you spearheaded. Uh, you were part of a uh, leading a course for Open SAP, which is a series of MOOCs, free online courses for the masses. So, Frank, just give us a quick description and a little bit about the panel discussion we worked on together. 
Sure, sure. The course is titled Reimagining the Future, A Journey Through the Looking Glass, and it really is focused on where is uh, humanity heading in the next 20 to 30 years, and what does that mean to not just society, but leaders everywhere. Um, and we did have several panel discussions as part of the course. Uh, the one that you moderated so expertly was the, uh, uh, fo- the focus on ethics, um, which is really a, a growing topic, because all these things, whether it's artificial intelligence or robotics, or even the privacy and cybersecurity discussions, uh, could lead down a path that has significant unintended consequences. And so should we really be focused much more on ethics? And and that's the panel discussion with a couple other futurists, Grace Scott being one of them, uh, that you participated in. Thank you. It was really, I I was very privileged to be invited to do that. So uh, keep me in mind for future panels. You know I love to do this kind of thing. Thank you, Frank. And now let's turn to our third panelist, Larry Stoley. I think he stopped driving the car. I know what he's going to tell us when we get to the what's in your cup today because he always drinks the same thing. But it's always (laughs) fascinating the way he tells it. Larry has sent us a quote from Stephen Hawking. Stephen William Hawking. He has so many letters after his name. C-H-C-B-E-F-R-S-F-R-S-A. Also young, born in 1942. I'm getting old when I think 42 is young, 1942, an English theoretical physicist, cosmologist, author, and director of research at the Center for Theoretical Cosmology within the University of Cambridge. He was the first to set out a theory of cosmology explained by a union of the general theory of relativity and quantum mechanics. I'm just going to leave that one alone way above my pay grade. But here is a very provocative quote Larry selected from. Dr. Hawking. Here we go. I think computer viruses should count as life. I think it says something about human nature that the only form of life we've created so far is purely destructive. We've created life in our own image. Wow, that's kind of a a fire and brimstone damnation. Larry Stoley, how are you? I'm well. Thank you very much. Well, you're very welcome. So talk to me. How'd you pick this quote for our topic on data protection, consumer privacy, such as it may or may not be? What do you think? It's interesting, Bonnie, because, you know, I I follow Hawking a bit, mostly because I'm amazed at his intellect and and so on. It it always makes the top of my head itch because most of it goes right over the top of my head. Um, But he's, you know, and I don't always agree with his politics, but he has some very profound wisdom in in some of the things he says. And it kind of ties to to what my uh, uh, colleagues on this show were talking about as well. You know, viruses, malware, all those types of things that uh, are part of hacking, hacking itself is all a real picture of mankind. And, you know, when we talk about that, we have really just exposed another uh, fractal of, of what mankind is all about. There's good and there's evil. There are, uh, there's always going to be that conflict, that tension, if you will, between right and wrong. And, you know, data privacy is a prime example of how that plays out. And coming at this from, you know, from, from the automotive side, people have always said that, you know, a, a vehicle, a connected vehicle, whatever, is... Nothing more than a wallet to be opened up and funds to be pulled out of. And, you know, I find that very amusing from an automotive perspective uh, because I just, I, I have a problem with that. And, you know, the car companies that build all this connectivity into vehicles, and I realize I'm in one small segment, segment here, uh, you know, are trying to always to figure out how that's monetized. So it, 
data coming from a car has, has really no value unless you're very specifically interested in that very precise data. So my point really is, here's yet another example of our lives that we're in, day in, day out, and so on, that we have to be concerned about where we are, what we're doing, our privacy, and so on and so forth. And it's just amazing how Stephen Hawking said, you know, this is just a picture of mankind. Yep, absolutely. Helen, Helen Brimfire and, and taking, well, he's holding up the mirror, Larry, isn't he really? He's saying, look at what we, look at what we've done, people. Look at what yep. we've created. And, and in a way, that's really what our topic is, is look at what we've created. We want access. We want everything now. We want information. We have a way to do it that is very much not protected. So the reality check is get over it. But now we're holding businesses up to a standard of, well, what are you doing about it? Let me just go around the table and and ask the question, is it right for people to say to businesses, well, I trusted you with this. You asked for it. We're sharing information. So do you care and what are you doing about it? Brian, how hard are we supposed to expect businesses to step up? to that challenge, given the realities of what we know about the web? Well, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I, I think it boils down to um, it is a quid pro quo. We, we as consumers, we, get, we serve up information to companies because we get something back for it. Um, the automotive example is a really good one. You know, you might, you might um, come up with all kinds of wild conspiracy theories about what people are doing with your GPS data, but the fact is, is there's a return benefit. Um, and the return benefit is if you break down someplace, the the um, the um, the roadside assistance can find you. <laughs> not a, not mm-hmm. such a bad thing. So so we we make these trade offs all the time. Um, the when it gets out of sync, when you're giving up a lot of data and not getting anything back for it, um, that I I truly believe that the consumers first of all have the have the um, permission, have an innate per- permission to not engage. Right. Um, the second one is they, they, they have permission to, to ask uh, companies to, in, in a general sense, I think, what they are doing to protect the data. So, for example, they go back to the Home Depot um, um, hack a couple of years back. Home Depot did, a, I thought, a, a really good job of explaining to people um, what had happened and what they were going to do about it. Um, it's that it's that level of information, and I think is is fair game. Um, you can probably think of companies that didn't do such a good job of that, um, and I won't mention them here. But um, when companies fail to convey the nature of the problem and the nature of the solution, then uh, consumers have every right to say, "Hey, wait a minute! <laughs> I gave you a bunch of information. You're going to deliver value. The information got stolen, and you haven't got a good answer as to how you're going to protect me going forward." And it's fair. Hey. Thank you. Yep, absolutely. Frank, Diana, I'd love to get your POV in this. What do you think? Do we have a right to challenge businesses? Well, you know, everybody's getting something out of this deal, but you're stuck with protecting us from ourselves. What do you think, Frank? Uh, you know, everything we're seeing, in my mind, is really a series of either virtuous, virtuous circles or vicious cycles. I mean, what we're seeing here is how technology, our connectivity, and, and much more these days science, has sort of set a bar, uh, set a series of expectations that we've now all come 
uh, to really like. And so friction that's removed from our day-to-day experiences, uh, we really appreciate that frictionless kind of experience. And we're not going to walk back from that. And so, it, it, as I think Brian just said, it's a series of trade-offs as we think about our future going forward. Uh, we like the Uber experience. We, we like that friction's been taken out of you know the driving experience in that regard. And, and we're just not going to go backwards, right? So I think it's it, it kind of a catch-22 here. We're caught in between. And so we can be very critical of business when they don't uh, take care of our data, but we like the personalization that comes with it. That's right. There are all kinds of ways of looking at who's really, whether there should be empathy or not. That's another completely other topic. Uh, and Frank, I know you appreciate that in, in terms yeah. of the ethics of what we talked about. Larry, what do you think? Should we hold businesses responsible for what we freely or, or easily gave them because we wanted something from them? Well, that's a, a very interesting question. You know, I'll start with a little analogy. Years ago when I was growing up and I slipped on the ice in the driveway and fell down and hit my head, oh. I, you know, I looked around and hoped no one saw me. Today I look around for a witness. <laughs> so, you know, the, the reality is I, I, we all, we're always, mankind is always looking, the blame can't be on me, it must be on somebody else. So I think fundamentally, yes, there is an absolute obligation and responsibility of business to protect data to the extent they can. But privacy and, and the protection of my data is, is really a duality. It's, it's not just them. It's about me as well. Businesses are better prepared to protect data than I as a, you know, a, a personal consumer or generator of data am. So businesses have a greater responsibility, yes, but I also play into that. And some of the things I do mm-hmm. uh, impact businesses, and you know, it, it's very hard for them to protect themselves from the things I do. So yes, they're responsible, yes, they're accountable, but to some degree, so am I. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I don't know if I speak for my three esteemed panelists today, Brian Kilcourse, Frank Diana, and Larry Stoley, but we look, we tend to look askance a little bit. Maybe you can admit that because I sure will. Reality time, honesty check here. At people who are not engaged online, what? They don't have a profile on LinkedIn? How do they expect anybody to know who they are? What? They don't exist? What? They don't have a Twitter account? What? They're not on Facebook? We look down at people who haven't joined the party, but some of them are saying, wait a minute, I hear too much about hacking and too much about lack of privacy. I don't want to play into that, or I've been hacked, or I know the downside. You know, I've been stalked, cyber-stalked. I'm not going to do it. So we look at it as not the haves and the have-nots, but the wills and the won'ts, or the wills and the will-nots. Just a quick uh, quick round, very quickly. Brian, do you agree with that, that we, we qualify those people differently, those of us who are in the midst of all of this? What do you think? Well, I think to some degree, I, you know, it's important to remember that, especially for the younger set, um, uh, information about themselves is kind of a currency. It's um, yeah, and 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 it's like saying somebody is off the off the electrical grid, right? Um, or they're they're out there in the woods hunting their food rather than going to the store. You start to worry a little bit about their mental health. Um, you know, modern society is a connected society. It's a real time society, and. Um, and you know, it, and in that way, um, people who disconnect from it, of course, you know, the the people who within that society will say, "Hmm, what are they up to?" Now, is it is anybody's business? I yeah, that's another question, but um, sure. Okay, thank you very much. It's, it's like when you go to a dinner party and everybody says, "Oh, I saw the last three top hits on Broadway. It was great," and you're sitting there saying. 
I haven't been to New York in a year. I don't know what you're talking about. You're 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 really left left out of. I don't know if it's the fun or the expense or the or the hoop de doo. Uh, we we won't we won't talk about that. Frank, what do you think about people who are I, I won't call them on the edge, but who choose to be outside of the fray or the excitement versus those who jump right in with all of their data? What's your thought? Are we marginalizing them? No, I, I think there's always that set that doesn't want the government watching them. I know people that won't even get easy pass <laughs> because they, they they fear that, right? <laughs> um, but at, at this at this state, point in time, there's a choice. But the question really is, at what point does that choice cease to exist? Because we have really uh, pretty much automated everything, and uh, participation is no longer optional, right? So that easy pass example, you can only not get it because you still have an option to go through a lane and pay. Um, I just think that those things slowly go away, where we take the friction out of just about everything, and now you, you're either part of the party or you're just not processing. <laughs> there you go. Larry Stoley, thoughts on that? Well, I, you know, I live this every day. I'm, I'm generally out there, so, you know, a lot of my stuff is out in the public world and so on and so forth, and I'm okay with that. I'm, I'm cautious and so on. I don't go overboard. My wife, on the other hand, is very reserved, very constrained. She's very much old school. No online banking for her, for example. So, mm-hmm. you know, in my home, we've, we've kind of got both edges of the spectrum. You know, we've got me who doesn't, you know, who understands and appreciates it. My, my wife, who is much more reserved and cautious because of all the reasons we've talked about. And, you mm-hmm. know, the, those people who are cautious are not, you know, they, I, I don't call my wife on the edge of society, not, not trying to get away with it, you know, obviously. But, you know, they're... They're not on the edge of society. They're just concerned. Uh, so, you know, I, I think we have to understand that uh, there, there's really, you know, there's the extreme, there's the middle of the road, and then there's the people like, uh, like millennials, for example, who are out there. That is their digital currency. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and there might be a day when they'll be wagging the finger, your wife included at you, Larry Stoley, and saying, uh-huh. I told you so. You shouldn't <laughs> have gone there, Larry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, turn off that GPS. Get rid of that easy pass. Yes, good point about the easy pass, Frank. Well, now I'm going to make it easy for the three of you. I, I really appreciate your, your uh, fielding off my questions, and I know that wasn't part of our agenda, but I... I just feel so privileged to have the three of you and all of this brain power and, and insights here that I want to make sure we get plenty of it for our audience. So now it's time for What's in Your Cup today. So, Mr. Brian Kilcourse, where are you calling from? No Google coordinates of the roof of your house or office. We don't want to put that out there, do we? We're protecting Brian's privacy. And what are you drinking today or what would you rather be drinking, Brian? Oh, my goodness. Well, I'm, oh uh, I'm in Northern California, about an hour from uh, Lake Tahoe in the Sierras. Uh, out here in the in the country, and I'm drinking some Pete's organic coffee today. I switched off from my French roast to try the organic stuff, and I have to say that I can't tell the difference between it and a regular good old cup of Pete's coffee, but uh, this time of the day, I can't imagine drinking anything else, so there it is. Oh, that's nice. I'm sure that makes you happy. Mr. Frank Diana, where are you and what are you drinking? I'm uh, home in New Jersey. Almost, I'm going to head to the airport as soon as I hang up on this call. I'm heading to California, but I'm drinking um, water. Uh, pretty boring. Nothing in it. Well, <laughs> what would you rather be drinking? Come on, Frank. Give us a little more. What would uh, pretend there's something really fun in that cup? What would it be? Kevin Mulcahy uh, is listening, so Kevin uh, wants to know. Kevin, he's, he's going to ask the question. Go ahead. Kevin and I shared an IPA last night, so let's just say I'd rather be doing that. 
Okay, there you go. See, see, I channeled Kevin, and all of a sudden we got a drink out of Frank. Uh, Kevin works with Frank, and Kevin was so kind to me. And, and Rose, I think her last name was Rodriguez, at TCS, were so helpful when we were preparing the MOOC and, and getting ready for the panel discussion I moderated that Frank and I discussed. So shout out to Kevin and his colleagues as well. Larry Stolle, I think we know what you're drinking, but tell us anyway. Go ahead, Larry. Pure black Folgers coffee, and um, I have to say, Brian, thank you for validating what I've always believed. There's not that much difference in anything. <laughs> <laughs> it keeps you awake, and it's working. <laughs> yeah. There you go. There you go. Yes, and you know, talking about privacy, we have a series called The Internet of Things with Game Changers. Some of you might have been on that. It's Ira Burke series. He's the sponsor of it at SAP, and we talk about sensors everywhere in everything. And think about that belt in your car under the hood that will tell you that there's a mechanic who's already been scheduled three miles ahead to repair the belt just before it breaks. Okay, think about that privacy. Think about sensor in your coffee machine, your Keurig, your Nespresso, whatever you choose, telling you, well, you're almost out of the cups and that you need to fill the water and you didn't use filtered water last time and the thing's going to go explode on you in the next three months if you don't take care of the machine. So we are, in terms of privacy, we are giving so much of it away for that convenience, for that knowledge, for that avoidance of the OMG, the oh my God, why didn't I pay attention? The the lack of privacy, the sharing of information is helping us avoid that OMG. That's another way of looking at it and we want that. We don't want to be, well, was I stupid? I didn't fill the right kind of water in my coffee cup. Uh, anyway, so we're going to take a quick break and you know I'm only drinking water. I don't think of it as ever boring, but it's my cool, clear mug with cool, clear water and Frank and I, I think, are sharing the same beautiful bright sunshine and blue skies here today on the East Coast. We had enough yep. rain for a while, Frank, but rumor has it it's coming back. Was it really 100 degrees there yesterday? Because it was just about 100 here. Yeah, 100 degrees in Newark. It was set a record. My, my, my. Yes, we're all we're all heating up. Well, we're heating up the airwaves here with this very important topic. This is part two of You Don't Own Me, But What About My Data? And we're focusing on whom do you trust? Time for businesses to protect customer data. Is there such a thing? We're exploring that very important topic today. It affects you no matter whether you're in business or you're just a personal listener. And a shout out to Karen Geraldo is back online. Kay Geraldo 24 listening and very, very much appreciate her, her tweets. She's listening intently. Uh, we're talking to Brian Kilcoris at RSR, Frank Diana at TCS, and Larry Stoli at SAP, all three companies with three-letter names with no periods in between, and it's so easy to say. We're doing alphabet soup. I'm Bonnie D. Graham, and I plan to be after the break, so don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. We've got so much more to talk about, and it is fascinating. Kevin, out. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The time for enterprise mobility is now, according to IDC. By 2013, over 1.19 billion workers worldwide will be using mobile technology, comprising 34.9% of the workforce. The impact of mobility on business is clear. Increasing numbers of business users are expected to handle critical tasks and decision-making in real time, no matter where they are. SAP and Sybase and SAP Company offer mobile applications and underlying infrastructure with integration to SAP. SAP Systems for secure access to business processes anytime, anywhere, and on any device. www.sap.com 
Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're enjoying Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. You can send an email to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet your questions and comments during and after the show at Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to Coffee Break with Game Changers. Yes, indeed. This is Coffee Break with Game Changers, part two of a show we did on March 1st, 2017. The topic was, you don't own me, but what about my data? Channeling the late, great Leslie Gore. I actually went to the same college as Leslie and saw her in the bookstore once, Sarah Lawrence College in Bronxville, New York. And today we're talking about whom do you trust? Time to protect your customers' data, and we are focusing on businesses' responsibility. So we're going to start the roundtable with Brian Kilcourse at RSR, that is Retail Systems Research. And Brian has sent me the following notes. Let's start here. He says, any organization's strategic assets include its inventions, its operations, its real assets, its employees, its customer base, and its knowledge of the market it operates in. Let's relate that to our topic, Brian. I'm going to let you pull this all together, please. Well, the uh, the point there is that every single one of those things has information uh, involved in it. It's in some way, right? So um, uh, there's a digital version of, of all of that stuff somewhere within the four walls of the company. And, and, and so my contention is and has been for quite some time that um, the information about the assets uh, is, is an asset in itself. And because it is, it deserves all the same uh, protections that any other asset that the company has um, in, enjoys. So the, the reason this comes up, of course, is because oftentimes information security is not a board-level discussion. But it ought to be because um, losing information is, is, if nothing else, a way to, for your brand to be sullied in the marketplace. And it could be much worse than that. Um, and uh, that for, a good example of that um, is um, the information that um, uh, Apple Computer refused to share with the NSA about uh, the, how, to, how to hack an iPhone for a, for a terrorist in San Bernardino. Yes. You remember that whole thing? Yeah, very much, yes. Yeah, it was an interesting. I, I wish that the NSA hadn't um, hadn't picked that fight with Apple because it brought up the issue in an interesting way. I mean, there's there's arguments on both sides. The NSA deserved to be able to get at the data, and, and Apple deserved to not have its secrets in the public forum the way it, they, it was going to end up being. So the, the the secret that Apple was trying to protect is its code, um, mm-hmm. and and that's as valuable as the phone itself. Uh, that's the point that I'm making. And, Brian, I'm just going to read one statistic here because I know we're short on time. We had such a good opening half, and I want to make sure we get this in. You say customer companies must come to realize that data theft is a big business. You say bad guys 
Okay, IT resources for the bad guys are devoted 100%. I'm going to make that 1,000% to stealing your data, while about 5% of less of a company's IT resources are trying to protect that data. It's like bringing a knife to a gunfight, one of those uh, interesting metaphors. So just one quick comment on that, Brian, before I move on and get Frank and uh, Larry to chime in here. Well, we, I, I cover the retail industry. It's the industry that I come from. And usually in the retail industry, in the IT organization, there will be a data security group, and it will typically have a few people in it. Uh, and and uh, their, their job is to, is to make sure that the protections that they thought they had in place are, in fact, in place. But most people aren't aware that there are whole campuses of people in other parts of the world who are 100% devoted to data theft. It's a business for them. They punch in and punch out just like we do, except they spend all of their efforts trying to figure out ways to steal data. Um, that's what I'm talking about. It's, it, it, we, have to, we have to invest in a level uh, commensurate with the threat. Thank you very much, Frank. Diana, agree or disagree? What do you think? Well, I definitely agree. I think what we have to be careful of is the, is the extreme shifts that occur Either that we're too lax in terms of the security that's required here, or when an event does happen that either tarnishes our brand or other, then we we move too far to the other extreme, uh, and then we impact other things like the kinds of experiences that our our customers expect. Uh, so there's there's a balance, just like there's a balance with everything. I think even here, um, and beyond that, I, I think the the only way that businesses can stay on top of the, this rapid pace of, of data theft is to leverage some of the same technologies that allow others right. to steal it. And so I think artificial intelligence, I think blockchain and others will be leveraged very aggressively to, to really drive a very intense uh, focus and ability to, to deal with security issues. I think you're right. Thank you, Frank. And let's get Larry Stolian on this. Larry, what do you think? Well, you know, today the, the digital world and the physical world are, are really coming together. And, you know, if I look at myself personally, I have a digital twin in existence, right? Um, that's my data. That's the unique things that others know about me. That's my digital twin. So I'm extremely concerned about protecting that. I think it's, you know, absolutely, you know, uh, a responsibility that includes me but is way beyond me to protect that. And I, I agree. You know, blockchain and, and all of those types of things will conspire to make that job of protecting my digital twin uh, a bit, I don't want to say easier, but a bit more effective in the future. So um, fully agree with what my two colleagues said. Larry, I want to know if your digital twin is drinking Folgers, too. I'm sorry. <laughs> I haven't checked lately, but I assume that based on this radio uh, series, my digital twin is indeed drinking Folgers. Oh, I feel so much better. A twin indeed, a twin, an identical twin. I feel so much better. Thank you. Uh, Brian, anything you want to wrap up on that before I move on to a topic from Frank's list? Brian? Well, as it relates to the technology, there is, there is good news. And the good news is, is that the technologies are coming to the fore that actually have the rules of use of data inbred in them. And blockchain is a really good example of that. But um, um, you know, technology is racing to catch up with this challenge. And, and that's, I think that's good news for everybody. Okay, good news. We all appreciate good news. Frank, Diana, I'm looking at your notes here for part two and some interesting topics. You already covered AI and blockchain a little bit, but let's talk about the ecosystem that's causing part of this concern. You say protecting data in motion 
becomes even more critical as collaborating with multiple stakeholders in emerging ecosystems becomes the dominant growth engine. Frank, that topic, that sentence is so packed with buzzwords and with concepts. I want you to take it apart, just deconstruct it, and then put it back together in terms of data privacy. Go ahead, Frank. Well, sure. But I have to first start with sort of defining the, the notion of an ecosystem. And what we're seeing is that value creation capture is increasingly happening in the context of ecosystems. Think in the uh, connected car, smart home, where a number of stakeholders have to come together to actually create that value and, and, and capture it at some level. And so as multiple stakeholders get involved, you, you've actually made the problem more complex because data is in motion. It's really spanning a number of different stakeholders. And 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 that level, who's responsible for securing that data? Um, because, again, you've got multiple parties now that are involved in the creation of that value. Uh, so I just think it gets more, this problem gets even more complicated as we start to look at where the world is going in the context of our industry and vertical orientation to more of a horizontal ecosystem orientation. And, and I just think the way we create frictionless processes means that more and more and more data will be in motion. So you're, you're moving from trying to protect a static asset to something that's constantly in motion. Frank, interesting. On so many consumer websites, you see a little note at the bottom that says, please know, we assure you, we will not sell your data. Is that true anymore? Is that, is that something that they can actually live up to? It, people say to me, friends who are not really that web savvy and that not, not that tech savvy, say, why did I get 20 advertisements on my email today? How did they find me? Why is my mailbox, my physical mailbox, stuffed with ads from companies I don't know anything about? Why am I getting robocalls for stuff I don't even want to buy? So is there any truth in that anymore, Frank, in terms of this ecosystem of not selling customer data? I, you know, one of one of the biggest topics in uh, on executive uh, meetings these days is the monetization of data. There, that mm-hmm. asset that we keep talking about, as the realization that that asset is monetizable on so many levels, uh, and some of it it's not a privacy concern. If you've got you know insurance related data that can be bundled in some way to create more value in the context of an ecosystem, why not? That that's a really good path to pursue as far as monetization strategies. The other side of that discussion, though, is when, when we're using somebody's data in ways that really we shouldn't be, but it's all about the revenue and the monetization, and, that, and that's clearly happening. Um, so I'll leave it there. Thank you very much. Yeah, very provocative. Larry Stoley, love to get your thoughts on this, on the ecosystem aspect. What do you think? Well, you know, the, the, the ecosystem is an interesting one for me because in this conversation, we're talking about my data and companies' use of my data and so on, but... You know, as we go forward, you know, we talk a lot about business in the moment. We talk about personal devices being connected to corporate data uh, so that employees of corporations can, you know, uh, use data to make intelligent business decisions in the moment, so to speak. So now I've got a personal device connected to my corporate data. So wait a minute. I'm not talking just about my data sometimes. I am talking about something extremely important, corporate data, whether it be engineering, whether it be uh, other databases, whether it be, uh, you know, some of their brand secrets and so on and so forth. Uh, this this whole thing of connected devices, uh, data and so on, is really bigger than do you own my data. It's, oh, wow, can my device be used to get to not only somebody else's data, but also corporate data. So I just throw that out as this is a bigger conversation than just uh, 
my data versus retail and, and somebody sending me stuff to my inbox that says, hey, you should buy this or look what others did. Thank you very much. Brian Kilcourse, thoughts, please. Well, this whole inf- uh, the, um, the, the issue about an ecosystem is really a good one. I mean, we're moving from hierarchical models to really peer-to-peer models. And um, there's an old, there's an old um, little bit of data wisdom that goes back to the, gosh, that, the 70s. And the, the rule was is if data appears in more than one place, it will be inconsistent. <laughs> so <laughs> this was always a problem, right? It was, I spent a lot of time trying to fix those problems when I was uh, a CIO. But um, in, in today's world, um, uh, corporations are working together, or, or you know, legal entities of one kind or another are working together to solve a person's problem. And a person, you know, a person is a consumer. And, and these corporations are sharing data backwards and forwards. Um, and, and, and so it becomes the responsibility of the ecosystem partners to make sure that that's done in a safe and sane way. And, that, and it does. It multiplies the challenge um, almost geometrically. So, um, so th- th- again, it's, it's a big, big, big technical problem. Um, there are new technologies coming to the fore. I mentioned blockchain earlier as one of those, um, where, people, where companies are just starting to, to play with it. But it has some important implications. Um, it, it, it's just a multiplication of the problem that we must all be aware of. Thank you very much. Frank, I'll circle back to you. Any thoughts you want to share on what your colleague said about your topic? Yeah, I'll just uh, close this piece of the topic with um, back to a virtuous or vicious cycle. One is fueling the other. I mean, the the complexity that's coming as we think about this concept of ecosystems, it's just driving more and more innovation in the context of blockchain and other things. So the hope here is that as the complexity rises, it drives the pace at which solutions manifest themselves, and one can only hope. Thank you very much. Larry Stoley, I'm looking at your notes, and we have a redux here of what you shared with us on part one. You don't owe me, but what about my data? So I'm going to open up to you, Larry. You want to talk about automotive dealerships? That's your your car guy focus, being squarely in the middle of the data ownership wars, or do you want to talk about bots in our lives? I'm going to let it, leave it up to you, Larry. Where do you want to go? Well, let's talk about dealership data since it's kind of near and dear sure. to me. You know, I know. For many, many years, there was this, this tension, if you will, there was a conflict, there was a chasm between automotive manufacturers and dealers, and customers kind of got drug into it a little bit. You know, customer data, who owns it? Is it dealer's data? Or, wait a minute, you brought my my vehicle, uh, I need that customer data too as a manufacturer or an OEM. So there was always a, this huge contention between dealers and manufacturers in terms of, data and who could share it, who could have it, whose data was it, and so on and so forth. And, you know, the, the customers really raised their hands and said, wait a minute, what about me? And, in fact, that was a very good question because customers own their data. Dealerships didn't own it. They owned their business aspects of the data. They didn't own the customer data. Manufacturers wanted the customer data, but the fact of the matter is they needed some aspects of the business data Long and short of it is it goes back to, you know, the same thing we talked about earlier in this program. You know, if there's mutual benefit, I, nobody seems to care where the data is. And I think everybody in the automotive world, particularly in the automotive ecosystem, is, you know, very much okay today with the fact that if I get something in exchange for something you know about me, that's just fine. I only have a problem when it hurts me. So I think, you know, fundamentally what, you know, 
manufacturers and dealers, and oh, by the way, the dealer systems providers, fought over aggressively, militantly with each other for years, is now kind of like, who cares? You know, if I get something, I'm okay. So I, I don't, I, I see that as an issue that went away. No matter how many times companies try to make an issue out of it, it's no longer an issue. Thank you very much. Let's move around to Brian Kilcoris. Agree or disagree with what Larry said? Well, I think, yeah, I think it's true. Um, you know, um, again, it goes back to us getting away from kind of hierarchical control models in, in, in all kinds of ways um, in business and in society and much more of a peer-to-peer world. And, and, and so some of these arguments about who owned it, um, who owns the data, are, are really kind of so 20th century, aren't they? Um, <laughs> what we need to be talking about is, is it, are, are, are the ways that companies use it to deliver value um, transparent enough to, to survive inspection if somebody decides to look and make sure it's done well. So, you know, as long as it's delivering value, I think people say, yeah, okay, I'll trust you. Um, and, and then you don't want to breach that trust, of course. But um, I think people are open to it. Okay. What about people being up to it? Frank, Diana, do you agree or disagree? That's a rather provocative statement. What do you think? Well, I think people are always open to um, getting value in return for something. So I think that's always the, the trade-off kinds of discussions that we have. But <laughs> you know me, uh, Bonnie, I'm a futurist, so I can't help but to interject uh, the scenario that we just talked about in the future context, and that is when we're no longer selling that vehicle to the end consumer. Um, because they're not owning cars anymore. And so the, this ecosystem that we're now going to call the mobility ecosystem, where, where mobility is a service. Again, there's all kinds mm-hmm. of stakeholders involved in delivering that service because you might be you know, calling up a car to go on a business trip, and it, every, the experience is very different than the car you might be calling just to go down the street. Uh, and so how many people are involved in creating that experience in the context of mobility, and where is that data flying uh, to, to create that service? So it, I, I just think the complexity, it might have, might have settled down now. I, I just think we just go through another series of complexities that bring it back to the fore. Thank you, Frank. And, you know, we're just about two minutes before we go to our crystal ball prediction, speaking about future and futurists and futurism, Mr. Diana. Frank, I'm, I'm looking at one more item here in your notes. I think I'd like to have you cover just briefly, and then I'll circle back to Brian and we'll do our crystal ball predictions. You say digital assistants will increasingly learn about us. That's a different, I think it's a different perspective than what we've been talking about here. We've been talking about freely giving our data or giving it not sure where it's going to go, who's going to handle it who's going to share it and sell it. And you're saying digital assistants will learn about us. This is something that we want them to. And you say this is enabling a progression towards digital agent doing many things on our behalf. So this is where we're not only freely giving it, we expect it, we want it, we pay for it. Damn it, uh, Siri or Alexa. You know, you should know where my favorite spaghetti brand is and, and when the cupboard's going to be empty and where that movie is playing. So what's the, the paradox there in terms of privacy, Frank? Any thoughts? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that one up. I mean, if you think about the frictionless uh, experiences that I've been talking about and the, and the role that a digital assistant like Alexa or Siri plays in creating those experiences, that's just going to continue to happen more aggressively over time. Um, but that can only happen if your assistant starts to know a lot about you. And, and there's this vision or view that they're going to know so much, they're going to know more about you than you know yourself. And they can actually make better decisions on your behalf than you could. And so that's a progression from digital 
assistant to digital agent, which is what I just described, and, and the concern that at some point in history, uh, in the future, uh, they'll become digital overlords. Uh, and that's the you know, super intelligence scenario that people fear. Um, but so that, that to me says it's not, that's not a business discussion about data protection. That's a willing uh, giving of our data to the point where these, these assistants are learning an awful lot about us. There you go. That's what I was looking for. Thank you very much, Frank. And now it's time, Mr. Kilcourse, I gave you warning. I'm going to give you 60 <laughs> seconds now for your predictions. Uh, we're talking about current. We're talking a little bit about past. But we've been dipping our toe in the future view of what's going to happen here. We've talked a little bit about digital assistance, a little bit about AI, a little bit about blockchain, a little mm-hmm. bit about ecosystems. So I think we've been poking into that oh, that window or pulling, pulling apart that kimono, if you will, or opening the kimono for the future. So, Brian Kilcourse, I'm in love with the year 2020 just because, you know, Barbara Walters has been telling us, 2020, one of these days she's going to call me up and say, how dare you imitate me on the radio every week. But the question is, it's ingrained. You know, we have a TV show, 2020, and somebody told me it's only three New Year's Eves away. So I'm wondering if uh, Kevin Mulcahy and Frank Diana will still be drinking Goose Island IPA on New Year's Eve 2020. I don't know, Frank, whatever you're going to be doing. But anyway. Count on it. Yeah, count on it. Okay, we're predicting where, what Frank's going to be doing and what Kevin's going to be doing. But, uh, Brian, let's let's take a look at your prediction. I'm going to give you 60 seconds. What will change about this whole notion of protecting customer data, willing or unwilling, witting or unwitting, ecosystem or digital assistant? What do you predict? 60 seconds, go. Well, I think that technology is a, is a, is a huge player here, and even though we've been working on it for years, it, we're still in the early days. I, I, I hope and I believe that uh, technology will evolve to the point where the rules of use, things like use restrictions and encrypt, encryption and red, uh, retention time, those kinds of things will become, become part of the data itself, will, will determine how it gets used, just like the cell in our bodies does. Um, so I, that, that, to me, is where I think we're going. We're moving away from kind of a perimeter-based type of a control system to something where the rules of use are embedded in the data itself. That's pretty technical stuff. I've got a long way to go. It's showing up in all kinds of places, but I think in the next few years we'll see lots of innovation in that space. Thank you very much. That's exciting. A little scary, but exciting. And now let's go to Frank Diana, Mr. Futurist on the panel. What do you see coming down the pike? 60 seconds. Frank Diana, go. I, I agree. We're going to see a lot of innovation in this whole space, cybersecurity and other data protection, et cetera. And, and not just innovation, but uh, focus from a regulatory perspective. Uh, Europe already doing a lot of work in terms of privacy. And, uh, and I think those kinds of things, when we, when we, look, when we look at the human aspects of this and how we might interject uh, some governance in, into this process, those things can either be obstacles or accelerants. Uh, and because there are some positive things, obviously, that this discussion drives that we don't want to uh, prevent from happening, uh, yet we want to mitigate the risk of some of the, the, the downside. And so it's going to be interesting to watch the, the kinds of obstacles and accelerants that manifest themselves in the next uh, three years. Thank you very much. Thanks for focusing on three years ahead, three New Year's Eves away. Larry Stoley, where will you be driving? What will you be drinking on New Year's Eve 2020? No, tell me what your predictions are for Sirius. Larry, go ahead. All right, seriously. You know, we talk a lot about highly, you know, multi-layered security and so on and so forth. We talk about embedded rules of use, artificial intelligence, and how that can help protect our data and so on and so forth. And I fully believe that. But I will tell you, until artificial intelligence, machine learning, and all the tools that that brings forward is sufficiently advanced to 
uh, protect us from ourselves. The thing that I, I really want to say is human brain can always seem to breach that which another creates. So my prediction is until the machines become smarter than us, uh, there will always be an opportunity for the human to uh, break what another human creates. Good. There you go. Boy, I think there's a movie in there somewhere. You know, if we took all of what we said, the three of us, the four of us today, and put it into a script, I bet there's a little movie in there. I'm going to be working with somebody on my new team on possibly some some sci-fi movie storytelling about critical issues like blockchain and machine learning and digital assistance. And maybe I will tap the three of you for some ideas. I'll let you know if that progresses. So we are just about out of time. I want to thank Kevin Mulcahy and Karen Geraldo, our tweeters, and Stephen Thorne, a.k.a. Digitalist Mag. That's Digitalist Magazine. I appreciate that very much for you all being on board here at our Twitter party, hashtag S-A-P-R-A-D-I-O. It's always a thrill, seriously, to speak with the three of you, Brian Kilcourse, Frank Diana, and Larry Stoley. And I hope you'll come back for part three. Uh, Brian, I'll task you again with coming up with another tweak on the topic, on the abstract for me, if you'd like to. And we'll do it in the fall, if you're yeah. willing, because I think this is too important a topic not to keep covering it. So there's my prediction for the future is they'll be back. So I want to tell my listeners, fasten your seatbelt. It probably has a sensor in it somewhere. And it'll say, Larry, the coffee is cold. And Brian, you need to do a little more research on this particular topic because Bonnie's waiting for you. And Frank, it's time for another MOOC. I don't know what your seatbelt's going to tell you. What are you waiting for? Be like Frank, be like Brian, be like Larry. Maybe be like me and go out and be a game changer today. Everybody have a great one. We'll be back tomorrow morning, 10 a.m. Eastern here on the Business Channel with Computing at the Edge, changing the landscape of big data with IoT, Internet of Things sensors on the Internet of Things with Game Changers Radio. Have a great one. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the Coffee Break conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter, hashtag pound sign S-A-P-R-A-D-I-O. Please join your host, Bonnie D. Graham, again next Wednesday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a great week.